When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 37. Keystone Capers. Charlie, Stan and I sat in the back of a limousine driven by a chauffeur in a peak cap and watched suburban Los Angeles flicker past the windows like a moving picture, bungalow after bungalow, palm tree after palm tree, all dusty and bright in the autumn sunshine. We were on our way to visit the Keystone Studios in Edendale at the invitation of Max Sennett. He had come to see Charlie at the Empress the night before, and afterwards in the bar he had made a beeline for me and Stan, the real Mr Chaffin, before Charlie had quickly made himself known and elbowed his way into the conversation. Sennett cheerfully invited all three of us over to inspect his facilities, hoping, of course, to impress Charlie into signing a deal, and the opportunity for me to maybe give the little man a nudge in that direction was too good to miss. Because that was my plan now. Ever since the emotional upheaval of that week in Seattle, a month ago now, I'd been perched precariously on the horns of a dilemma. What to do? What to do? On the one hand, Carno had promised me a number one slot if I could persuade Charlie to stay with the firm. It was a tantalising prospect, I had to admit, something I'd dreamed of ever since I'd first stepped onto a musical stage. But supposing I did that, put all my eggs into that basket... It would have to be with another one of the governor's companies, more than likely back in England, where I would be thousands of miles away from Tilly and the baby, and perilously on hand to get entangled in the old goat's divorce proceedings. And even that was presuming I could trust Carno to keep his word. Aye, there's the rub, as some fellow once said. The more I thought about it, the more it seemed to me that if Charlie stayed on board, which seemed pretty likely it would be damn difficult to demonstrate that it was any of my doing. So I might not actually be able to take any credit at all, and where would that leave me? Stuck in the blooming boxcar with Charlie forever and ever amen, that's where. On the other hand, though, on the other hand, if I could somehow persuade Charlie to abandon vaudeville to make Max Sennett's idiotic motion pictures, well, then there would be a sudden vacancy as the number one of our American company, with bookings to fulfil and I felt sure I could convince Alf Reeves of my merits ahead of Charlie Griffiths or Edgar Hurley or even Stan, especially considering the company manager's desire to protect our friend Edith Carno. Then, you see, then, I could return to Seattle in triumph, collect Tilly and little Arthur, and everything would be rosy on Dando Street. And so, after many sleepless hours of deliberations, that was the course I had chosen. How was this to be done, though? How to manipulate the arch-manipulator? How to be more devious than King Devious himself? How to have less Ruth than the most ruthless person I knew? And how to do that, moreover, whilst letting Carno, perhaps the second most ruthless person I knew, believe that I was doing my very best on his behalf? Now, Charlie claimed to be merely using the Keystone offer to screw more cash out of the governor, and it suddenly struck me. What if Carno found out from a concerned and loyal employee, that Chaplin was trying to play him. What would he do then? I decided it would be well worth finding out, and sent a wire by the Western Union, which would be waiting for him when he returned to the fun factory. 
Edendale, when we got there, was not a particularly glamorous part of the world. There were a few small lumber yards and a junkyard or two, and then some farms which seemed to be pretty much deserted. A handful of general stores fronted onto the dusty road, and they were little more than shacks. We arrived at the Keystone lot, and the limousine rolled up to the entrance, which was up a garden path to a rather unprepossessing bungalow. I could have wished it were a little more impressive, actually, for there was a dilapidated feel to the place, with its shabby green fence. I tried not to let my disappointment show, however, and smiled approvingly at everything as we stepped from the motor car. The three of us walked up and into the building, not really knowing what to expect. Max Sennett himself was waiting inside, and greeted us warmly. "'Let's go straight onto the lot,' he said. "'Then you can really see what we've got going here.' Out the back of the bungalow we followed him to the stages, where that day three movies were being made at once on three adjacent sets. A soft, even light pervaded everything, thanks to broad streams of white linen that diffused the bright sunlight to provide the very best conditions for photography in the California daylight. That first glimpse of the world of motion pictures was overwhelming. You never saw anything so busy. You never stood in one place with so much to look at all at once. The three films were being shot on interior sets, but none of the buildings had ceilings. They were all open to the sky and the sunshine. In the distance you could see the mountains and the ramshackle farms that made up the neighbourhood. The Keystone lot must have been a farm itself, and the building that housed the dressing rooms looked very much like an old barn. All around there was hustle and bustle, as people hurried hither and thither with planks of wood on their shoulders or furniture, and on the sets themselves everyone seemed to be shouting all the time to make themselves heard above the general rumpus and racket. On the first set, Mabel Normand was banging on a door, shouting, "'Let me in!' Then the camera stopped, and that was it. We stared. We had no idea that movies were made piecemeal like this. We assumed that they were filmed like stage sketches all at once. On the next set, which butted right up against the first, Roscoe Arbuckle, a baby-faced clown who gloried in the nickname Fatty, was evidently paying court to his sweetheart. It was an intimate little scene, but there was no thought of anyone asking for silence. The actors were expected to perform while wooden beams were being hammered for another construction just a few feet from their heads, and the director was shouting his instructions over the constant racket. Look left! Sad face! Now to me! To me! All right, get up now and fall at the bottom of the stairs! Great! And let's go again! Senate made a little speech, talking constantly as he showed us around. It didn't seem to occur to him that he might be a distraction to the work in progress, and in point of fact he wasn't. He was simply ignored like everyone else. "'Movies are the fastest-growing business in America,' he shouted as we traipsed along in his wake. "'Folks can't get enough of them. Anything you can get on film will make money. That's why there are companies springing up all over town, like Comet, Imp, Fanhauser, Lux, Majestic, Gaumont, Champion, Eclair.' He counted these off on his fingers as he went." Let me tell you something. All those guys are making big bucks, all of them, if they know what they're doing. The key thing, the keystone thing, if you like, is to specialise. We specialise in what you guys specialise in. Comedy. Comedy, comedy, comedy. He waved a hand to encompass the whole operation surrounding us, and with perfect timing, Ford Sterling, the leader of the Keystone Cops, fell out of a window right beside him. OK, cut it there. Mac, you were in that shot. Ha <laughs> ha, sorry, fellas. Sorry, Ford. Senate patted Sterling amiably on the backside, and then explained their method of working. We have no scenario. We get an idea, then follow the natural sequence of events until it leads up to a chase, which is the essence of our comedy. Charlie turned to me and mouthed, No scenario. All I could do was shrug. 
On the middle set, the director was waiting for his leading man, Fatty Arbuckle, to be ready to shoot again. Senate grabbed him by the elbow and pulled him over. "'Fellas, this here's Henry Lehrman. We call him Pathé because he used to work for them in France, but now he works for us. Pathé, this is Charlie Chaplin. He's going to be joining us.' "'Well,' uh, Charlie began, as Lehrman looked him up and down, weighing him up like a piece of meat. "'Can you fall off a stepladder?' the director said in an indeterminate European accent. "'What?' Charlie said, taken aback. "'I mean, can you do a funny sprawl off a stepladder without breaking off your bones?' "'Sure he can,' Senate cut in. "'Here, look!' And he grabbed a stepladder from the third set, the Keystone Cops headquarters, and set it up right there in front of us. Charlie looked helplessly at me and Stan, but there seemed nothing for it but to give it a go, and so he did, tumbling down off the ladder into the dirt in his smartest suit, then dusting himself off. We laughed dutifully, and Lerman seemed satisfied, turning back to his work. Meanwhile, a stagehand was hanging off the top of the third set by his fingertips, feeling with his toes for his missing stepladder, finally falling noisily into a pile of paint cans. We stood and watched the great Ford Sterling shooting his scene for a while. He was a very popular comic, and plenty of people were gathered round just to watch him work. He was playing his character in the Dutch style, and libbing all the while in a heavy Teutonic accent, which got lots of laughs from the guys standing around watching, but which would be useless on film, of course. Ford Sterling, he started in vaudeville, you know, Senate said. And Chester Conklin there, the fellow with the walrus moustache, and Max Swain, the big lad at the back, spotted both of them in vaudeville shows. They both love it here. You can ask them. Ask them if they'd ever go back to the 25 shows a week grind. Not right now, of course. The camera's rolling. <laughs> it was as well, not four feet away, but nobody thought to tell the boss to keep quiet. They probably couldn't even hear him over the rest of the banging and crashing that was going on. The cameraman was hand-cranking the film with the handle on the side of the camera, keeping a steady pace. Senate nudged me. Tell you a secret. You see that handle there? Yes, I said. You have to turn that at a particular speed. The guys learn that. It's part of the job. We had a Russian guy called Sergei when we first started, and it turned out he was cranking too slowly. Undercranking, we call it. And we'd tell him to speed up, speed up. Why does everything have to be such a rush, he'd say, old Sergei. And he'd just carry on the same lazy way. Anyway, we noticed that cranking slow, like Sergei did, made the fellows on screen seem to be racing around like mad things. And sometimes, in a chase sequence, say, that's just the ticket. So now, we do it on purpose. But we found out entirely by accident. How about that? Just then, there was a loud cry of lunch, and suddenly all the action stopped. Tools were downed, and people poured out towards the entrance, heading for the general store over the road, which did a roaring trade in hot dogs and sandwiches, evidently. A blessed silence descended gradually upon the lot, and Senate watched with a benign grin on his big face as eight or nine chaps in police uniforms galloped away from us to get the nosebags on. "'Another thing I like to do,' he said, especially with the cops, "'is I get them to pretend to bang into imaginary obstacles, bounce off them, so they're always changing directions. Works, too.' Senate clapped his hands together. "'Say, why don't you boys take a look around by yourselves while it's quiet, and when you're done, come up to my office. It's up there.' He pointed out the tallest building on the lot and a picture window looking down on the mayhem from on high, and then, with another beaming grin, he strode off. "'Well,' I said to Charlie, "'what do you think? It's pretty exciting, isn't it?' "'It's a madhouse,' he muttered. "'A madhouse.' "'I like Mac,' Stan said. "'Seems like he'd be a lot of fun to work for.' "'Huh,' Charlie grunted. We strolled around the sets and noted how flimsy they seemed compared to some of our stage builds.' They only need to use it once, I suppose, Stan said, applying logic to the chaos. It's not like they have to pack it into a boxcar and put it up again in the next town, week after week. 
Charlie was wandering ahead by himself, lost in thought. He was fed up, and it could hardly have been more obvious if there had been a large black cartoon cloud hovering over his head. "'Whatever's the matter?' I asked. "'Though,' Charlie wondered for a moment about keeping things to himself, but the desire to vent won out. "'It's Carno. He's digging his heels in over the next contract. He's offered me a tiny little raise. Pitiful, really, considering that I am the marquee name. And he wants to stick with the Sullivan-Considine time, won't even consider trying to break an East Coast circuit.' "'Disappointing,' I commiserated. "'I've a good mind to go with Keystone just to put the old bastard's nose out of joint.' "'Yeah,' I said. "'He'd hate that, true enough.' "'One thing at least seemed certain. "'The governor had got my wire. "'We came to one of the whitewashed bungalows, "'perhaps once a farm building of some kind. "'The sign on the door read, "'Costume Department. "'There was no one inside, "'so we went in to get out of the midday heat. "'Charlie slumped into a wicker chair. "'I don't know,' he sighed. "'It's just not my style of thing, is it? "'No scenarios, did he say? "'I can't abide chases.' And this stop-start way of working, how would you ever build anything worth a damn? I'm not sure, I said. But once you got used to it, I'm sure you'd find a way of getting the most out of it. Thanks for the vote of confidence, Arthur, Charlie said, but I can't see what I would even do here. Oh, come on, I said, looking to stand for help, and we both started rooting around in the piles of clothing strewn around haphazardly on tables. What about... I found a jacket with a sort of battered grandeur, a couple of sizes too small, and quickly slipped it on, doing the buttons up with difficulty across my belly. Here, Stan said, chucking me a pair of oversized baggy trousers, which I pulled on over my own, and then I stepped straight into a pair of long, flappy shoes which were tucked under a table. By now I was looking round for a hat and found a rather shabby derby, which I jammed onto my head, and another comedy standby, the springy cane I chose from about a dozen stuffed into an elephant's foot umbrella stand behind the door. There, I said, turning just as Stan slapped a small toothbrush moustache onto my top lip to complete the whole effect. Ha <laughs> ha! Excellent, Stan said. It's our old friend, the stowaway. I turned out my toes and did a shuffling walk up and down the costume room, twirling the cane as I went. When I reached the far end, I hooked the cane around a hat stand and used it to change direction with one foot up in the air. Then I waddled back, doffing my hat with an exaggerated gentility and swaying from side to side, as I had on the Cairn Rona all those many moons ago. Charlie muttered, Nat Wills, more like. Stan guffawed and clapped his hands. No, no, it's the stowaway, all right. All you need now is some ship stewards to chase, and there you are. That's a scenario right there. No scenarios, Charlie grumbled. Remember? "'Oh, come on, Charlie, cheer up,' I said. "'Look how quickly I put this together just from what's lying around here. "'It'll be a piece of cake for someone with your skills and your music hall nous. "'And look at all the vaudeville players he's got on the strength already.' "'Yeah, not exactly the creme de la creme, are they?' "'What do you mean? "'Well, you don't see Ed Wynne or W.C. Fields hurrying to appear in movies, do you? "'These fellas are strictly second rank.' "'I didn't know what to say to that, and an awkward pause ensued, "'which Stan broke by getting to his feet.' Let's go up to Mac's office, shall we? D.W. Griffith was just leaving Senate's room, wafting his face with his straw hat, and he was introduced as the celebrated film director. I saw your show at the Empress, Griffith said, not this week, but the last time you were in town. I really liked the costumes you wore for that initiation scene. The costumes he was referring to were the long robes we used in the wow-wows topped off with the conical masks with two holes cut for the eyes, the costumes that we hated to wear because they were baking hot inside for one thing, and for another they rendered us totally anonymous. Still, it was nice to hear that somebody liked them. 
Take a seat, fellas, Senate said, ushering us in. We could hardly help noticing at once the room's most unusual feature, a large claw-footed bathtub over by the window. "'Ah, yes, I get some of my best ideas soaking in that tub,' he said proudly. "'I get a good cigar on the go and look down on everyone from Mount Olympus.' Senate sat in his big chair and plonked his huge feet up on his big desk. "'So, fellas,' he said, "'what do you think to Keystone?' Charlie looked lost for words, so I jumped in. "'It's fascinating,' I said. "'I don't know what I was expecting, but it is amazing to see everything so squashed together.' "'Oh, yeah, we need more space, no doubt about it,' Senate said. "'But we we don't shoot everything here on the stages, you know. "'Sometimes the place is deserted. "'No, we're out and about, out on the streets, "'or we'll go to the park, say, "'if we decide we simply have to throw Fatty into a pond, for example. "'And sometimes we'll take a camera out and see what we can find. "'I remember one day there was a Shriners parade in town, "'and we busked together a whole story about that, "'just weaving in and out of them as they marched along. "'You have to think on your feet sometimes, that's the truth.' "'You have to be quick on your feet, too,' I said, "'when there's a locomotive bearing down on you, for instance. "'Oh, you saw that one, did you? "'That was a closer shave than I meant it to be. "'I don't mind telling you.' "'There was a knock on his open door, "'and we saw pretty Mabel Normand wanting a word. "'Mabel, get in here,' Senate called out. "'Come and meet the guy we saw in New York, remember? "'The one I said I'd hire if I ever got the chance?' "'Chaffin,' Mabel said, walking straight over to Stan. "'Pleased to meet you.' "'No, no, that's Stan. "'This is Charlie Chaplin, this guy, here.' Mabel had been working in the silent movies so intensively that her facial expressions were easy to read, and she was currently playing, but I could have sworn. Charlie got to his feet, took her hand and kissed it, saying, Enchanté, in his rather oily, simpering fashion. Now Mabel's eloquent face was saying, What the hell? Senate swung his feet onto the floor and leaned across the desk, using his big ham hands for emphasis. So listen... I've got three star dressing rooms over there in the big barn. Sterling, Arbuckle, and Normand. How about a fourth? For Chaplin, eh? What do you say? Aha, Charlie said. When can you start? Oh, well, the fact is I am tied to Carno until December. That's all right. I can wait another month or two. It's been quite a while already, hasn't it? That's why I thought I'd get you over here. Thrash this thing out, man to man. Hmm said Charlie, running through his repertoire of non-committal wriggling noises. Senate turned to me and Stan. "'Tell you what, there's a job here for you two guys as well, if you want it.' "'That floored us, and no mistake.' "'What?' "'Us?' Stan said. "'Work for you?' "'What are you making now? I'll double it.' "'That sounds very tempting,' I said. "'Very tempting indeed.' "'Well, think about it, boys, and just let me know,' Senate said amiably. Charlie got to his feet, abruptly cutting off that line of conversation. "'Thank you for your hospitality, Mac,' he said, thrusting out his hand. "'I will certainly give you an answer very soon. "'But just now we really need to be getting back to the Empress for the matinee.' "'Of course, of course,' Senate said, looking a little deflated. "'He put a brave face on it, though, and showed us down the stairs "'and out through the bungalow to the car he had waiting for us "'with the same energy and bonhomie he had exhibited throughout our visit.' Charlie was quiet during the drive to the theatre and during the afternoon show, and again in the evening he seemed distracted. At one point, during his now-celebrated dry cracker-eating bit, he seemed to have forgotten that it was a comic turn altogether, and just sat on the stage looking off into the distance, simply eating one cracker after another, while the audience wondered what the hell was supposed to be so great about this. In the dressing room, at the end of the night, Stan and I were ready to go out and find ourselves a drink or two, but Charlie was still in his stage costume in front of the mirror, just sitting and staring, staring and thinking. Charlie? 
We'll be round the corner, Stan said, but Charlie didn't so much as flicker. He was in a world of his own. Once we reached the bar and lined up a couple of beers, Stan and I were finally able to discuss the day at Keystone. The most difficult moment was when Mac offered us a job, Stan said. I didn't know what to say. I mean, can you imagine working there? The racket! I know, yeah, I said. I think he probably thought that if he invited us along too, it might help swing Charlie round to the idea. Do you think he will go for it, Charlie? I can't tell. I just can't tell. Just then, Charlie walked into the bar. He spotted us and walked slowly over to where we were sitting, the weight of the world on his shoulders. Stan? Arthur? I thought you might be interested to know, Charlie said very seriously. I have reached a decision. I realised my heart was racing as he held the moment. So, I said, are we looking at the next star of the silver screen? The next titan of the tintypes? Charlie looked at us levelly, then delivered the verdict. No. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Chapter 38. He wore a worried look. You'd think Charlie would have been relaxed after making his momentous decision. After all, it had been hanging over him for months now, even if, as he claimed, he'd only been stringing Senate along. But no, he was still worrying away at it. I could see that, from the way he was biting his nails and staring into the distance whenever he had a moment to contemplate his lot. I'd have given plenty to know exactly what he was thinking, but the chances of him confiding in me were somewhere between negligible and nil. Stan was another case, though. The two of them were still pretty thick, even though they didn't share a room any more. So Stan might well be privy to the workings of the chaplain mind. I knew he sympathised with Charlie, and believed his decision to stay with Vaudeville was actually the right one. So did I, for that matter. And even if Charlie was still having doubts, and confided them in Stan, would Stan then pass that on to me? He might. He might not. That was my anxiously considered opinion. So, when I happened to pass by Charlie's door one morning, a couple of days after our Keystone visit, and heard two voices engaged in earnest discussion, I paused. Then I sidled up close, taking care not to squeak the old floorboards, and pressed my ear to the panel. What if, though, Charlie was saying, what if pictures really are the future, and I've passed up a brilliant opportunity to get in on the ground floor? Do you really think so? Stan's voice replied. 
Oh, I don't know, Charlie moaned, and I had the impression he might actually be wringing his hands. Listen, you've decided now, haven't you? Vaudeville. Vaudeville is the thing. It's booming. Anyone can see that. So ride the boom and aim for the top. You know, I heard that there are so many vaudeville theatres in the greater New York area alone that you can work a whole year without unpacking a bag, let alone cramming yourself into that accursed boxcar. Then there's Broadway, and that Ziegfeld Follies, or what's the other one? George White Scandals, Charlie offered. Exactly, Stan said. So why not just say, what the hell, and try to forget all about it? Well, for one thing, Mac was so very affable when I told him I wasn't interested, and he said, any time you change your mind, you just give me a yell, you hear? So the door is still open, and it almost feels like I haven't decided, not really, not definitively, not yet. Hmm. And then there's the money. Carno flat out refused to give me the raise I asked for, even though I made sure that Sid knew what I'm being offered by Keystone, which is the same thing as telling the governor himself. Outside the door, I was nodding to myself. That was just as I'd thought. But he's given no ground at all, which means that all those months of dangling Senate on the line have been for nothing. I'm going to resent working for so little. I can feel it. Well, you'll just have to keep your eye on the prize, my friend. I suppose so. There was a shuffling of feet and a squeal of bedsprings, as though the two of them were standing up and making ready to leave. I was just about to dart away out of sight when I heard Charlie ask one last question. Tell me straight, Stan. Should I have gone with Keystone? Well, I could hardly tiptoe away before hearing the answer to that one, could I? Come on, Stan, I thought. Here's your chance. He got you the sack, remember, because you were just too damn funny. It would have been a bold move, Stan's voice said after a pause, and I sighed and sagged against the doorframe in impotent despair. Suddenly I saw and heard the handle turning, and there was no time to take cover, so I quickly raised my fist as if I was just about to knock on the opening door. "'Aha!' I said, as my presence was revealed, and Charlie took half a step back in surprise, throwing an arm up to ward off what he thought was going to be a sucker punch. "'I was just thinking I might head over to Sausalito on the ferry,' I said, with a jollity that sounded forced even to me. "'Take a look at the giant redwoods over there. Apparently they're quite something. Any takers?' "'No, no, no, thank you,' Charlie said, regaining his equilibrium. "'I think I will just go for a stroll in the city. "'Stan?' "'I'll join you, I think,' Stan said to his roommate, giving me a quizzical frown. "'Right-o,' I said brightly. "'Well, have a good day, you two. See you at the theatre later.' When I pitched up at Sid Grauman's Empress a few hours later, it was to find Charlie sitting in the corner of the dressing room staring into space. He was pale and seemed to be trembling. Stan was sitting nearby, keeping a close eye on him, and when I walked in, he shot me a wide-eyed look. "'Everything all right?' I said. "'How were the giant redwoods?' Stan asked. "'Oh, you know. Huge. Inspiring. Red.' Alf Reeves came in from the corridor behind me and peered anxiously at our near-catatonic number one. "'Whatever's up with him?' I said to Alf, who grimaced, nodded to Stan, and then furtively beckoned me to follow him. He led me out of the dressing room and along to the theatre manager's office. "'I'll tell you,' he said, sitting heavily in a leather-covered desk chair that swivelled around under his weight. "'It has been the damnedest day.' "'Why?' "'What on earth has happened?' I said, sitting opposite the company manager as he opened a bottle of bourbon and poured himself a couple of fingers. I looked around for a second glass, but he soon put a stop to that thought. "'Not you,' he said. "'You're on stage in less than an hour.' "'So? Tell me.' Alf took a long drink. 
exhaled through his teeth, sighed, and began. This morning, he said, I was just out stretching my legs when I bumped into Charlie and Stan heading down Market Street over on the sunny side. They weren't going anywhere in particular, so I thought I might as well tag along, you know, bit of company kind of thing. Right, I said, not seeing anything too remarkable just yet. Well, we came to this small storefront, bead curtain across the door, smell of something, oriental, slow burning away inside. There was a sign up advertising that there was a fortune teller inside, and Stan goes, hey, look at this, you want to try? I wasn't too fussed, but Charlie pipes up. I think I came here once before, when I was by myself and bored and in the mood for a bit of mumbo-jumbo, and he's peering into the darkness like he's tempted, you know. So Stan and me, we say, all right, and in we go, the three of us. Inside, it's all dark, and it takes a moment for our eyes to adjust from the bright sunshine outside. Sitting in the corner is a Chinese with a long, narrow, drooping moustache. He has a small folding table with cards laid out in front of him, dealing more from his hand. This was the fortune teller, I said. No, turned out he was just plain patience, Alf said. We asked him, he said, Fortune? And he gives us a flick of his pigtails like to show that we should go further in, through another doorway, into the back room. So then we're in the inner sanctum, and it's pretty murky in there. The only light is from a couple of scented candles smelling like jasmine or some such. And we can just make out, hunched behind a small table, in the centre of this chamber, there's the fortune teller herself, an ancient Chinese woman. Her head's bowed and covered with a hood, and she's just staring into a bowl on the table in front of her. This bowl has some kind of liquid in it, and it's giving off this vapour, maybe smoke, maybe steam, couldn't really say. Maybe she had a chest cold, I said. Yeah, you wouldn't be so flippant about it if you'd been there, I'll tell you, Alf said, pouring himself a quick refill. Sorry, Alf, I said. Go on, what happened then? The old Chinese woman beckons us forward, see, and we take our places across the table from her. It's hard to see her clearly through the fug, even though she's sitting just a couple of feet away, Charlie squinting at her. You're not the same woman I saw here two years ago, he says. She gone, the woman goes, and her voice is harsh and kind of rasping. The other one read the tarot cards, Charlie says to me and Stan. She told me I had money-making hands, that I would be a big success. That is true, this old Chinese woman says. You will be big success, very big success. Yeah, I expect she says that to everybody, doesn't she? I scoffed. Doesn't mean it's true, does it? Alf shrugged. Anyway, he said, the old woman starts waving her hands around slowly in the smoke emanating from the bowl, and she seems to be trying to read patterns forming there. Charlie takes the hint and slides a dollar across the table. Now she's closing her eyes and rocking back and forth, going, I see, I see, you have now big decision in your life, big. Maybe you change direction. Maybe you stay the same. Charlie gives us a wink and says, Well, that covers a multitude of eventualities, doesn't it? Suddenly then the old woman gasps, like she's just had some truth revealed to her in the vapour, and she starts this awful wailing. You have made wrong choice. You make very bad choice. Crumbs, I said. Really? Well, you know what's been going on with Charlie and these movie people, don't you? So this hits him like a thunderbolt. What? he goes, and his bottom lip is all a quiver. What do you mean, old woman? Alf started wafting and waving his hands around, his eyes tight shut, mimicking the fortune teller's trance. You should not stay on old path, he said in the old woman's rasping voice. You must change direction, new start, new business, break off with your past forever. 
She said that? New business? Yeah. And then there was more wafting and waving. It's difficult to see, she says, and she's acting puzzled now like she can't work it out. Not really new, like old business, but different. I cannot see clearly. All I see is you must make this big change. If you do, big success, big success. If you do not, very bad, very miserable, end badly. Alf paused, shook his head and took another drink. Clearly the encounter had affected him profoundly. End badly? What did she mean by that? Well, that's exactly what Charlie asked her. And do you know what she did then? No. What? I whispered. She lifted her head slightly and drew her finger across her throat. Well, Charlie gasped and his hands went to his neck and it was dark in there but I swear he was white as a sheet. What was she saying? I said. That if Charlie stays with Carno, he'll die? That's a bit much, isn't it? For a buck? I know, Alf said, sitting back in his chair, shaking his head. Well, after a minute or two, Charlie recovers a little, starts laughing it off, you know, saying it's all a bit vague. That's how the trick is done. I mean, everyone thinks about changing direction, don't they? I suppose they do, I said. So then Stan says, why doesn't he ask her something she couldn't possibly fake? Good idea, yes. Like maybe his family, something like that. So Charlie says, all right, old woman, tell me about my family. And he's smiling now, feeling a bit more chipper. And she couldn't do it. Wait till you hear this, Alf said, mopping his brow with his handkerchief. She wafts her hand about a bit more, swishing the smoke this way and that, and we start to reckon she's playing for time, you know, waiting for some more specific question she can get a hint from. I knew it, Charlie says, and starts getting up from his seat. Let's go, come on. So you just left. Alf shook his head. Wait, she barks. Father, dead. Ha! Lucky guess, Charlie snorts and makes for the door. The old Chinese woman is swaying now from side to side, almost toppling off her chair, and she suddenly cries out, Mother! Mad! Hey, that's right, isn't it? She is a bit cracked. So I believe, so I believe. Charlie, poor lad, faints clean away. No, drops like a stone. Me and Stan wrestle him back into his chair, and we're slapping his face, and, and Stan goes looking for a drink of water. After maybe half a minute, Charlie comes to, and I say, let's get you outside into the fresh air, son. You see, but the old woman ain't finished yet, not by a long chalk. You have brother, older than you, she shrieks out. He is brother, but not brother. Sid, Sid's his half-brother, I said. Same mother, different father. That's it, Alf said. You've got it. Your brother walks the same path as you, she says then, but you will be more successful than he. You will change your path, but he will stay on same road. Good heavens. And Charlie says, you mean Sid stays with Carno and I do not? Is that what you see, old woman? What did she say to that? I prompted. No, oh, but now Stan has had enough, you see. Come away, Charlie, he says. This is all just nonsense. Don't pay it any mind. Charlie's up on his feet again and we're about to walk out of there when she comes out with the topper. The topper, I said. You ready for this? Alf said, mopping his brow. You have a son, she says. A son? Charlie has a son? First I've heard of it. And I'm thinking you've blown it now, love. You've taken a pot shot and you've missed by miles. But strike me down if Charlie hasn't started shaking like a leaf. What do you mean, I have a son? He sneers. But the crone is absolutely certain of it. He is very small, she says. And he has never seen his father. You stole the mother of your son from another, and then you sent her away. Charlie whispers, 
I had to do it, or something like that. What the hell? Search me, Alf shrugged. And then all of a sudden, she stands up, this crazy old fortune teller, and she's taller than we thought she was, actually, and she sweeps a great cloud of the smoke into Charlie's face. Whoosh! She starts shouting at him in this horrible, croaking voice. You are bad, selfish man. Very bad, very selfish man. Over and over like that, and tears are streaming down Charlie's cheeks, and Stan's trying to get between the two of them. I've never seen anything like it in all my born days. Phew! And was that it? Was that the end of it? Not quite, Ralph said. Stan starts giving the old woman a right telling off. Listen here, that's enough, he says. We came in here to be told our fortunes. You will meet a tall, dark stranger, that sort of nonsense. Just a bit of harmless fun. We haven't come here to be told we are bad and selfish men. What about the big success he's going to have? Eh? Tell him about that. Don't meddle in matters that are none of your concern. Good old Stan, I said. Alf leaned over the table, glass clenched in his fist, and his story was clearly reaching its climax now. As you wish, the old fortune teller says with a nasty sort of leer. She reaches behind her for a bowl, like a fruit bowl, full of something that rattles and jingles as she swirls it around. She tips it out onto the table, and we see hooks, coins, buttons, cutlery, leaves, shells, corks, brooches, all kinds of odds and sods. And she closes her eyes and tips her head back, swooshing this junk around with her fingertips, until suddenly, as if guided by some mysterious power, she quickly snatches something, some items, one in each hand, and holds her closed fists out to Charlie. What is in there? Charlie asks, and his face is ashen with fear. I do not know, the crone says. It is your future, not mine. If you would know your fate, you must look and find out. Do you dare? Charlie looks at us, and he licks his lips, and then he nods, and the old woman slowly opens her hands to show. Alf took a big swig from his glass, and then wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. Christ almighty, I said, it's like an Arthur Conan Doyle or something. What were they, these objects? Alf looked at me as he reached again for his bottle, and it was the chilling look of a man who believed, sincerely believed, that he'd been in contact with something outside of the natural world. One was a key, he said, and the other was a stone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.